Welcome to the Unstructured Podcast. This week I talk with fellow performance design leader Elizabeth McGarry. Based in Boston, Elizabeth has spent the past two decades creating collections for iconic brands like Nike and Reebok and has led design for some of the most talked about startups in the performance and outdoor industry. From her early experience with coveted design labels in Antwerp, Belgium, to adopting her first son to become a single working mother at the age of 23, Elizabeth has built a professional creative life rooted in the mantra, family first, naming her design studio, McGarry and Sons. I'm Michelle Rose, and this is Unstructured. This episode of Unstructured is brought to you by Scholler, the global textile company headquartered in Switzerland, specializing in the development and manufacturing of high-performance fabric and textile technologies for athletic, outdoor, fashion, and workwear categories. Founded more than 150 years ago, Scholler calls upon its vast history of experience working with the most advanced equipment in compliance with the world's toughest environmental systems. Quality and sustainability have always served as the brand's core principles, with the entire production chain, from raw materials to the finished product, intensely scrutinized. For more information, visit www.scholler-textiles.com. Your focus on <laughs> it's like this comment about shifting culture. I'm like, oh my God, what was I talking about? Um, but it got me thinking a lot about how much that does mean to me and how it really has been such a motivator and um, a catalyst for me doing what I'm doing. So I really appreciate you slowing me down to talk about this listening to your your past episodes I'm just like so craving these deeper longer conversations um on these topics that we're all we're all swirling in it right and and having that platform and I know you and JJ were talking about like what's the community aspect of this Mm -hmm, Uh, mm -hmm. in addition to the one-on-one conversations and I just get really excited at that prospect yeah, I wanted to put the the focus of this episode on that shifting culture because that's what we're going through. But also, I feel that is something. Um, it feels very important to me. It felt very important to you and in our work and how we integrate it with family and our daily lives and also our value systems. You know, mm-hmm. and, and and what what we operate from. And I found myself um, feeling you know, ever since we've met a kindredness uh, with you as a fellow artist and designer and as a mom um, in how we work and go through struggles. Like I hearing some of your struggles really resonate with me. And I know they resonate with a lot of the design community. Um, You know, it's like, we want to make a positive impact in the world. We really do, but we want to also stay close and remain really connected to the people that we love and that we're caring for and how to Mm -hmm. kind of expand big and and stay home and close and connected mm-hmm. huge struggle and i know yeah. it is for you but you've made it work better than mm. so many people <laughs> and that just shows how hard it is <laughs> right like am i making it work <laughs> right <laughs> no i, I probably all do that game but yeah thank you yeah 
I ask myself that all the time too. And, uh, you know, <laughs> a lot of ups and downs with that, but, um, you know, it, it's like, I think it's very much reflected in your, your personal and your professional story, um, which I, you know, I said, you know, a slash because they aren't separate, you know, let's slash in, in my notes here. And I think it's really reflected in the name of your business, you know, McGarry mm-hmm. and Sons, which I know the story, but um, I would love to just quickly have you explain that to our mm-hmm. audience, if you would, please. Sure. It's kind of cheeky um, that when I first started freelancing, it was really at a turning point in my life. I had just given birth to uh, my youngest son and made a decision not to take a job that um, was waiting for me. And I started, that was scary. That was terrifying. And um, it took a lot of me working with my mentors and um, gut checking. It just felt right to stay home and experience that, um, those, that early precious fleeting moment of motherhood. Um, But I was so worried. I mean, I was 29 and I thought that if you take a break from the industry, you're going to um, become irrelevant as a designer. There's just a lot of stigma and stress and pressure around that. Yeah, completely. Um, and so, but I did it. I did it with with a lot of support and encouragement, and um, it ended up just being the right thing for me. It opened the door into freelancing. People kind of heard I was this free agent, and I was literally just sneaking in work between nap times and breastfeeding, and the occasional shower that I might give myself. And I was taking meetings at coffee shops. Sometimes I had a babysitter and sometimes I didn't, you know? And so I had these like boys in tow with me and it really literally was a joke. It was like, welcome to McGarry and Sons. We're going to have a meeting, a design review or a strategy session on my dining room, uh, at my dining room table while the baby's asleep. We've got 65 (laughs) minutes. Let's go. So, um, however, when, when, my husband and I really talked about the business was great. You know, I was busy. I was busy. I was bringing in um, collaborators and people from my past who I loved working with and building these mini teams for these projects. And my and sons just kind of stuck and it it extended beyond myself and my family to um, the way that we work. And we thought it feels really old timey and old fashioned and a mm-hmm. little traditional, but I think that there is a, there is an essence of that in the way in which we work, which is sort of counter to maybe what I should be presenting, which is, you know, like forward thinking, innovative, um, studio, which we also are, but I think at the end of the day, we really come together as family. We treat our clients and our collaborators as family. And so it's just stuck. Yeah, I think that's the thing that really draws me in the most about that. I mean, it's clear from your story that we'll go into that you're so rooted in that family first, as you as you we've talked about, and that really early on, I mean, this is quite a while ago you started this. This is trailblazing of here's who I am, take it or leave it. This is what you're getting. And and I'm not making any apologies about it. Because mm-hmm. that's what we've a lot of people have had to do, hide it, you know, and 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 to put it out there, I think just really um 
pushes it forward and gives it some power. Um, so I'm really inspired by that piece. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, yeah. And would, you know, when we talked about, we were talking about, I don't know, in our, in our last conversation, we were talking about shifting culture. I mean, my notes said that and I was like, yes, that really hit with me. And then I was trying to really remember, um, what it was we were talking about that got to that point. But the thing that I wrote down was, um, you talked about shifting culture because it needed to, it had to shift. And, uh, I wanted to know, what did you mean by that? I think that we were speaking about the future of design and design talent. It's something I'm really passionate about. Um, I'm, I'm feeling this separation between, especially the larger brands and corporate culture, um, kind of not having maybe the skill set to really nurture and hone young creative talent. And that is a huge miss. And so I think I, what I was referring to was the, the culture that is driving these big brands, big players have so much power, so much influence to do right in the world. And many have made their claims that they will, and they're, they're working towards more responsibility and everything else. But I'm working with some of these, these clients as well, and just sort of seeing how maybe that leadership style isn't shifting yeah. as quickly and keeping up with the, the, uh, what, what young design talent needs in order to stay motivated and engaged in that kind of environment. And we need that because those are the future leaders of these big organizations. So I think that that's what I was referring to. And I so wholeheartedly feel that way. It has to. And that's a conversation I feel like we've had a few times in the times that we've talked is, is just that missing um, guidance and, and creative leadership uh, that needs to happen. Um, you were also talking about, you know, mass consumption, politics, polarization and stuff, the other things that need to shift that exist, you know, within these companies as well. So there's a whole big sense of companies themselves are going through a massive shift and they don't know how to do it. I think in a lot of ways, we we have a really strong sense of what needs to shift. We just don't know how to do it, you know, in mass on the bigger sense. So yeah. What does that term culture mean to you? That word is so it's, it, um, it means different things to different people. It's loaded, right? Yeah. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm sort of laughing. I'm like, okay, so my sociology <laughs> friend is going to be like, just curling their toes hearing me describe what culture means. But I think that there's the big broad sense of culture, the, the language you speak, the food you eat, the music, you know, true traditions a lot of that steeped in tradition and um carried on for generations and and then there's there's the cultural current <laughs> thing that shifts mm-hmm. with the times and and when you feel a part of something or you don't feel a part of the the loudest voice in the room then you start to get these little bands right, a, a, right. subcultures emerge and right i think that as a designer and a creative and working with other designers and creatives, that's yeah. really where the change comes from. Right. And it is our job to amplify the subcultural. Yes. Movements. 
and find ways to to infuse them in our work, regardless of the scale of the project. Without without you know poaching anything that doesn't belong to you or or anything like that. There's obviously a lot of sensitivity that needs to come from right. Right. From that as well. But I think when you're, when you, that's why collaboration to me is just so crucial. You know, you bring in the right people who come from these places and they're, it's just going to naturally occur. And that's, that's how you open doors and open people's minds and hearts to, to a shift and change in, in thinking. So. Yeah. It's part, it's part of the kind of global learning how to get along with everybody as well <laughs> as we integrate a lot more. Mm-hmm. But I love what you said about that. Um, the subcultures, because that is a place that artists and designers and creative minds, we are so drawn to the subcultures, you know, in general, and those fringes and those new things and those odd little things bubbling up. That's where so many of us come from. And that's where we feel at home. And we often have more connection to those than the, you know, general population. And, um, and yeah, the new ideas, always I'm, i've mm-hmm. always been drawn to them since i was a kid mm-hmm. you know i think i was yeah. born into it so it's just <laughs> it's just natural for me to just exist there um and one subculture that like i grew up in the music scene my father also played music in the bay area my mom was part of that an artist and, and whatnot um and then i grew up you know found myself into the punk rock scene and then from there found myself in a martial arts community um and that was more for you know needing to I don't know I guess it was like you know healing health direction you know finding something finding my voice in some way and um but the the thing I ended up finding in that culture when I was in my early 20s was um that I found a really great community there and that the focus of the training was about making a positive impact on three major levels and that was self community and world. And so that you're always working on all three of those. And that has really come into focus for me since the pandemic as well, because we've all gone so internal, but we've also had this huge world thing and we've had to focus in on our local communities as well. Um, You know, and I want to, I, I really feel like I'm, you know, you've been somebody who's been working on making an impact on all three of those levels as well. We'll dig into more of that. But on a big picture level, how have you knowingly aware, you're being aware, tried to shift culture in your own life and work? Mm. Maybe unknowingly. Yeah, I think, (laughs) I think sometimes knowingly and unknowingly, I think when you pose this question, it makes me think about how just subtle acts, I don't want to call them acts of defiance exactly, but, you know, seeing, seeing something not quite right that needs, and for me, oftentimes that comes down to just someone's not being heard. I, I see this a lot in our design community, especially with young designers. I don't know why I feel so compelled to have like, you know, why it feels so crucial, but it just does that young designers need a platform and a voice. And so I think that if I am in a cold, I I work hard to cultivate that culture in my own studio. I have a lot of 
these are my, these are my walls, you know, so yeah. I get to create an environment that um, I always craved. And um, that's really just one of nurturing. It's how I am at home. It's like, be curious, um, ask hard questions, give hard answers, be truthful, do it with love. You know, I, I really believe in that culturally is how, you know, it's how I want to be to myself. It's how I am with my children and my husband. It's how I, I embrace communication and collaboration here in the studio. Right. So when I, when you extend that then to your community and you're not seeing that happen and it would better the situation it better the environment it better yeah future then I I think I look for ways to um model that subtly or not so subtly sometimes to success or or not you know I'm, I'm still learning how to influence I think when it gets outside of my um immediate grasp but that's really the culture shift that I feel really compelled to be a part of. Yeah, that's that getting bigger, you know, growing bigger out in the world. And with my experiences now with a few years, you know, ahead of ahead here, um, that starts to expand, you know, once we create that at home, and we're able to create that community, then we want to look bigger and see what is the impact we can make in the world when you've got that strong core unit. Um, so yeah, it, it just how you exist in the world. And I think that was in the training that I had with, with my martial arts community was it's not about learning how to fight and, you know, protect yourself. Yes. Yes, It's great. That's wonderful side, you know, piece of it, but it's about what you put out into the world all the time, every day for whoever's in front of you and on the grander scale. And, you know, I think at our age is, you know, in the middle, as we hit middle age, we start thinking about, all right, what what's the impact I need to make now on a larger scale? Because it's less about me, you know, and uh, more about a, a larger picture. I, I was listening to a podcast you had done a few years ago, and um, you had a few things that you wanted to be when you were growing up. You didn't necessarily want to go and be a designer. Um how did you choose design? What were some of those things that you wanted to be? And how did you choose design? Yeah. <laughs> this will be just the honest answer. <laughs> Not the sexiest answer. I wanted to be so many different things. Um, which this is also such a timestamp. I feel like we had to choose a thing. Yeah. And now when you ask completely <laughs> a young person, they're like, this and, oh, no. and that and that and that. Just multifaceted, just hyphen, hyphen, hyphen. Right. And I love that. I love that about this generation. But um, no, I think I had, you know, dolphin trainer was really high up there. <laughs> that Loved one I didn't animals. know about. <laughs> <laughs> um that was really young and early on. But um photojournalism, child psychology. And fashion design were like these, when I came push to shove, like junior year of college and starting to pick your head up. I was never a strong, very focused or dedicated student. I was like a very weird A's or F's kind of person. Like if I'm into it, I will be a hundred percent there. Um, and if I didn't see the value of it in my future or in my daily life, it was like, So I I excelled in things like my journalism class and um, psychology, philosophy, 
my history classes I really loved, things like that. Uh, math, science, not so much. Um, but I think that when I talked to my parents about it, to their credit with five kids, they were just very, um, first of all, it was like, you pay your, you, you pay your own way, you pay for your own way. We're not helping with college. We've got five kids. So do the thing that, um, you don't mind being in debt for. Right? <laughs> or also, I think that they, they didn't see me as a, as a person that was going to be really academically successful in a traditional college yeah. path, um, pathway, but at the end of the day, also, you know, my dad said, you can, um, if you have a passion for caring for young people, uh, you can always find a way to do that. You can be, you can volunteer, um, and do the thing that's going to bring you the most joy. And my parents were both very much like, if, if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life kind of mentality and, and always trying to find that for themselves. So I really got to uh, be encouraged by that. And that's great. But they, they definitely had their reservations. I'd never shown anything. I had never shown an interest, particularly even in art um, and design. But fashion in particular was just sort of always for me about this. I loved fashion photography. I loved magazines. You know, I was subscribed to Vogue magazine at 12 years old, not I don't know, whatever one was reading, YM or something at the time, right, but, right. Um, you know, I just, I just loved those images. Um, and I always, and still really think in those terms, you know, the finished product, the finished visual, um, and how that makes someone feel is always yeah. been a driving force for me. Totally, totally. That was always my thing as well. I had the stack of Vogue magazines and a stack of music magazines, you know, in my, in my youth as well. And, um, uh, but yeah, it's just that the, 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 the dream of it, that the visuals and the artisticness, but yes, how it made you feel. Cause I always yeah. knew like, like how I felt in clothing, if it wasn't right, I felt, I knew a sense of being really uncomfortable or wearing things that weren't me. Um, and so I knew the power of what, the right like that clothing could do to bring out the person the bringing out the woman as as I would say um mm. I'm curious about the child psychology because I actually do talk to a lot of designers and maybe a lot of women female designers um who are very like myself I studied anthropology and philosophy and some psychology as well and like um that interest is there across yes. those. And I'm curious where, why child psychology for you? I just kind of got goosebumps thinking about how, how absolutely right you are, about <laughs> how interconnected those are. I think that even as a designer, I'm just, don't talk that much about product anymore. That's going to sound weird. That's all I do. So I talk about product all day long strategizing product, but it, it always stems from who is it for and why would, why do they care? What do they care about? Yeah. And there, there must be a drive there because, you know, design is different than being an artist. I think an artist is really has something so in, intrinsic in them that they have to express it. And it's a very personal thing. And I think in design, you bring yourself to it 
all the time, but really you're thinking about who is this for and how do I, how am I improving the experience of their life through this thing? So you really have to think about, it's a very, you have to have a lot of empathy to be a good designer, I think. So, so, so yeah, absolutely. I think the idea of understanding what makes people think and behave and feel a certain way and wanting to solve it, (laughs) like help them through it. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah, you just stated that really eloquently um, in terms of of those differences that I've experienced with people doing fine art or art, you know, music or whatnot for themselves or or for their not for themselves so much. But um, from that place of, like you said, this is this is my expression of something. And that is what the artistic training is really for as well. Um, But in design, or at least in the world that we work in, in apparel design, it's so integrated with another being or other beings of what you're trying to create. You're not just trying to create, you know, a, a beautiful dress that's just going to sit here and be a beautiful, it's not really a beautiful dress until somebody's wearing it and being in it and, and existing in it and enjoying it or interacting with it and how it makes yep. people feel. I remember growing up feeling like I'm, um, um, I remember hearing, because I, I grew up as a teenager in the 80s, and most of the male designers, you know, aside from Donna Karen and a few others were men. And they would say, you know, um, women can't design for women because they can't remove themselves from the process. You know, men can look at women objectively. That's what I grew up with. And um, I disagreed. Um, but they said women will just design for themselves. And we, I think we're finally at a place where the most successful designs and designers are the ones who design for them themselves, that group that, that they relate to and are are empathetic with. So, and that, that to me is a massive cultural shift. Um, Absolutely. That really puts into perspective, you know, Diane von Furstenberg or someone who kind of came up with that, that era and said, a woman want, uh, I, and many women want to be, provocative and comfortable at the right. same time. Imagine that, you know? Right. Um, right. So I think, yeah, stepping into that, that yeah. power and putting yourself, you, you still have to think about how my experience relates to others and others like me and what can I offer them? But yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So you decided to design, you went to school. And um, you went to school at the Art Institute in mm-hmm. Seattle. I went to the Art yes. Institute in Portland, probably around the same okay. time. <laughs> yeah, actually, yeah. I think that there there wasn't one in Portland. And I think that was good for me, just that three-hour <laughs> well, distance the, uh, from my family. I think um, I think Seattle start, um, was there first, and I went to Basist College in Portland. And by the time yes, I graduated... Art Institute yep. bought it on like my last six That's months. That's right. <laughs> so yep, exactly. Yeah. Right. That's exactly what it happened. Um yeah, and I think actually to everyone's shock and awe, including my own, is I I was a superstar student. I started school in the summer, um, the summer course. I went straight through the following summer. I graduated early, top of my class. I was the department tutor I got to be paid because I was literally living there I was there all the time working all the time in the Mm. in the studios and I was like oh I can 
get paid to do the same thing that everyone's asking me for advice anyway, you know? So I think I was very intimidated starting. There were people who had been making their own clothes all through high school and they were just, um, so I thought so ahead, um, of where, where I could be, but I just really, I thrived because I loved it. And it was, you know, there were no Fs because I was just so into everything um, you found that it. I was learning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you found something there. What do you think hooked you? Like, what, what do you think you loved about it? Oh, gosh. I, I think that I was learning the skills because the, the Art Institute program is very tactical. It was, you didn't focus as much as on concept um, development and there was much less of an emphasis on like a portfolio was just a thing you did at the end to get a job but there wasn't a lot of um yeah theoretical work it was like this is how you cut and sew things these are the pattern making classes and I just I, th- I think what worked for me is that those learning those skills and working with my hands in that way was totally new for me, but I loved it. Mm-hmm. I loved mm-hmm. learning that. And yeah. I loved, as soon as I could, I would get a friend, get a photo. Well, my boyfriend in college was a photography major and we would do photo shoots and we would make the beautiful image. Right. So it's like, it, it was a means to an end. I think right. um, that I had always dreamed of I loved doing photo shoots so much yeah. so yeah I mean that so that was early on I mean you loved the photography and you went right there and then that shows in what you've done in your work as a consultant in your business um yeah all of these stories you have a lot of interesting stories they are mm-hmm. interesting to me that the pathways of how we get somewhere because that's what I love to talk about is this non-linear way and the way that opportunities just suddenly present themselves, doors shut, doors open. And I loved hearing about um, when you came out of school um, and you went to Europe. But then I want to talk about what that was like in Europe and go yeah. for travel and, and being there in a new culture. Did you grow up traveling mm-hmm. at all with your family? No. No, because again, I mean, my parents were just above working class. Yeah. Um, really just scraping by to be in that middle class bucket, you know, right. and, um, with five kids, our, yes. our trips were camping trips to the coast for two weeks. You know? Um, no, I had not even flown. I had flown twice by the time I graduated high school. Yeah. A trip to I Mexico totally relate to this. Trip to San Diego, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. nothing very fancy, but, um, yeah, here I was. I had an opportunity to, um, I will say this, I actually got some like life-changing advice. I was so into getting to work. So graduating, um, I I had an internship that I got through one of my professors uh, who was a tech designer, senior tech designer at Nordstrom Product Group. And she had recommended me for an internship there. So I was doing that. I was so proud of myself. I had a cubicle with my name on a tag oh, and my yeah. extension, you know, That's and big. I just, there's nothing about that that made me feel like a sellout or, and I just felt very accomplished and I was 19 years old, you wow. know, yes, so young. And, um, 
they were ready to offer me a job, but I had an opportunity through some family friends to go stay in Spain and work at a men's, uh, a men's tailoring brand, like a big Spanish company. And I was, a, I, that sounded amazing, but I was like really tempted by this, you know, salaried job with benefits, like with all the things I'm supposed to do. And I, one of the senior designers there, she just looked at me and she said, you better not stay here. You better go to Spain. This job will always uh, be here. Right. You know, and um, yeah. so I wholeheartedly went. My mom and I went over there together and uh, we, we did the whole like Euro Rail Pass train thing for a couple of weeks and got to Spain and uh, met up with our friends, our family friends. And they said, we have terrible news. Uh, the company has just filed for bankruptcy. They had made all these arrangements on my behalf. Wow. But great news. You can stay with us and you can learn Spanish and you can travel the country and all of that. And I, I was just crushed, honestly. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't in the, I was not feeling like a backpacking gap year in yeah. my future. I was really hungry to work. So, um, but it it was all meant to be because I um, ended up making my way up to Belgium with my dad. He came out and uh, mm -hmm. he had lived there as a foreign exchange student years when he was in high school. And um, we reconnected with his family and they said, you know, we're going to take your dad out for the day. You're going to spend the day with our, with our sister Gerarda. She, she makes dresses and things. You guys are like each other. And I'm thinking, we were literally in like rural countryside of Belgium. And I'm thinking, okay, maybe she's got a tailoring or like a, an alterations shop or something. Oh my God. This woman has this like gorgeous, um, renovated farmhouse in the countryside. Yes. But just outside of Brussels, sort of between Brussels and Antwerp. And, uh, we, we had gone shopping for the day together. She took me around and I'm in these shops looking at things that I've only seen in magazines, you know, yeah. and, um, just all the Belgian designers and Japanese designers, and these cult labels. And I'm, I'm, I'm touching things I've dreamed about. And she was so cool. You know, she's my dad's age, but she was like, BB Nicks meets Yojima Yamamoto or something you know what I mean like she was just That's the coolest awesome. woman with the most amazing style taking me to these amazing places we really hit it off and we went back to her um studio which I realized when we walk in and she's got you know designer sketches on the walls big cutting room sewing room sample room all this stuff and she says you know I could really use some help around here I'm sorry your internship fell through in Spain but I could would you want to come to Belgium? And I'm just <laughs> like, like, what internship in Spain? <laughs> I forget, I know, exactly. but you forget all about it. Yeah, exactly. Right. So it was just serendipitous. It was like exactly the kind of place I needed to be and I wanted to be. And her sketches on the walls that she's talking me through is, um, oh, there's this designer, Veronique Branchino. And I just like, my guts just dropped because her work was on my mood board you know in my graduating portfolio so I just thought I had discovered this designer that it was by no means a mainstream designer but no. you know just in those like yeah there was this amazing um 
magazine stand newsstand in Seattle at Pike Place Fish Market and I would yeah, get I knew all it. my expensive um you know magazines that would have like all the runway recaps and everything and but this is how I learned about this designer and there was something about her style that I just absolutely loved and here I'm standing in the room where um with the team that brings those ideas to fruition so I was just um this was one of those first lessons, I think, actually, in my life that I have adhered to, which is just like the universe answers. Yes. And you just, you put out the call and it answers. And I've been very fortunate, I, I know, but I, I've, I've seized on those opportunities at these intersections, you know, as they've come up and it's not failed me. Yeah, I think I think that's the thing. And I want to talk about the Belgian designers um, for sure, because that's where we have a, a common you know, interest as well. But that this idea that you take the opportunities, keep keep that radar out. For one, we talk a lot about that in our martial arts community as well as about setting your intention out into the universe and then go do the homework, do the work. And 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 um, but that to take those opportunities as they come and they may they may look like the bottom falls out. They may look like you've made the wrong choice or something, but you're moving forward because they're leading to something else, um, you know, as opposed to sitting there and trying to figure out what's, you know, not making a move because you're not sure. Is this the right one? Should I go here? Should I go there? Will I be happy with this? Just make a move. That's what I. Yeah, adore. nothing's permanent. Right. right. So right. it's like. The worst thing that can happen is what, <laughs> you know, and then you can kind of work yourself back up to a reality from there. Um, the worst thing that can happen is that it's not the right fit and I go home. Okay. Like we'll, we'll sort that out. That you've managed to find yourself right there. And, 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 you know, I know many, you know, a lot of people in our audience will know the Belgian designers and a lot of them won't, but if you're in the fashion world and if you're into women's fashion, you know, part of that Antwerp six, um, and Demula Meester is when she was my favorite, um, you know, so and good. all of them, but they have a style, you know, even when you get somebody like Heider Ackerman from who's Colombian, but he is very clearly that style there with them. All of that was a huge draw for me, especially coming from this kind of post-apocalyptic punk rock Mad Max world. It was like, that was my thing. But you find it. in It these... was very punk rock. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. And and that is their thing. Um, and, but it also was very, to me, very functional, more functional of the higher end fashion, even though it's lots of layers and, you know, but it to me as a woman, it was like. Oh, there's there's a sexiness about it that, you know, incorporates that menswear. It incorporates all kinds of it just it breaks the rules yep. and you can decide how you want it to look and nobody yes. else has to get it. There was a sensibility to to it, and especially with Veronique, you know, I think she. She had the this is really where I learned I, I didn't realize that I learned my value for the idea of a, a muse, you know, like always having a muse, but she said very clearly, I designed for the most interesting girl at the party, you know, the most interesting woman at the party, not the sexiest, not the most beautiful, um, the most interesting. And I think that that really 
that's aspirational to me, you know, um, that there was, she took menswear classics and really hyper feminine, um, you know, slips and almost these, these like undergarments from the turn of the century. And she would just mash them up over and over and over again. Every season was really inspired by uh, a new angle of that same sort of set of ingredients, you know, and I just, I just, I just loved it so much. And I think I still have a few pieces in my closet that I got, you know, gifted to me from working with her, but um, they're just as relevant today. And that's something else that I think I really resonated with me and in that, that culture and spirit of Antwerp at the time was really anti-fashion, you know, really, it was not, it was luxury from a price point perspective because of how they were made. They were, a lot of those designs were making in Belgium. I mean, the woman I worked for was the sample house for these designers. Yeah. And they literally went from like our working relationship together to the factory a few miles away. So there was a real community that was uh, very collaborative and um you know I was I had a meeting I was at the factory one day meeting with the owner and Ross Simmons comes in to like you know yeah. just like talk really chaotically about whatever trip he was on his way he was just super young him yeah. and Veronica were dating actually dating oh at the time, okay but, okay um she was she, she was pretty new too right and, and my, yeah they they went to university in. together and I think they graduated the same year or very close to each other. And, um, wow. and yeah, again, that was sort of that. There was a real sense of um, unity and camaraderie in that circle because you just sort of had to. I mean, Belgium was just like this tiny um, yeah. pin on, on the map and they were presenting it as part of Paris Fashion Week. But at that time when I was there, it was like all eyes on the Belgian designers, you know? Yeah. So yeah, I think yeah. that... Yeah. It was an exciting time. That's a great experience. I mean, I would love to, because I stumbled upon that. Um, I mean, I guess I would see it in magazines and not know. And then I stumbled upon it when WGSN first started. And I was you know, starting my first job and had access to when that first launched. And I was always looking for new places to travel because we would get to go to Europe mm. Um, you mm-hmm. know, for the sh- trade shows and whatnot. And then I would be able to hit a couple of other cities. So I always wanted to go somewhere new. And I picked Antwerp. Yeah. And because of somebody's oh. report, and I went there by myself, been there a couple of times, and fell in love with it, and just went, "Oh my god, yes. <laughs> this is like this it's is my my secret, city. right?" Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it's one of my yeah. favorites. There's something about how they really pushed for, you know, it's like maybe to a fault in a sense. There there's like a, you know, no names on the door kind of mentality. Like you have to know, uh, be in the know. And it was, it's very Belgian too. It's like every house sort of looks the same. Everyone drives the same sensible automobile, but what is behind closed doors could be a total disaster or a complete gem. It's very much part of the culture to, um, to not be too flashy and, um, yeah. I had a sense of also because a lot of the um their studios were right there 
in in Antwerp. I had yeah. and and the more I had read about Anne and and some of the designers and how their lives were, I was like, oh, I want more of that kind of life where it's just integrated. You know, it's yes. just part of that. And then she went into housewares and whatnot, and just this kind of this larger the view of um, everything's integrated. And I think that really speaks speaks to you know, the type of people yes. that we are, and then also what we end up designing for. Um, and yeah. that's a place where when I was talking about uh, travel as a culture shift, culture shifter, because I didn't grow up traveling either. And then I started to travel more when I got into design. And that just blew the world wide open for me. I mean, it completely shifts your mindset, right? Like, yes, what you think is possible, what, um, all the different options in the world, how people think differently. So that was to me, a big culture shift. Absolutely. You asked me about that and I went off on a tangent, but I did. <laughs> it's like, I went from no travel essentially to once I was in Europe and that's, yeah, that's, that's a culture in Europe as well. It's just like it, a really connecting, making it easy um, to cross borders. And, and you're having, it's, it's like, uh, two hours on the train and you can be hearing a new language, eating a completely different style of cuisine, hearing different music, yep. people dressing completely different. It was just, I loved that. I was just a sponge, you know, and I got, I was very fortunate to really, I hit a lot. I got a, a lot of stamps in that passport in that first <laughs> year, you know, of being That's over great. there. And Oh my God. That's so absolutely. great. How would you say then, you know, because then from there, you went into designing for some big companies back here in the U.S. Um, and we can talk about that because I want to talk about that company culture. But also like um, before we dig into that, because you ended up working and I'll let you talk about this, um, you know, in more of the athletic and and, and sport world or, you know, at, you know yeah, we'll go there. But um how did uh how would you say that your experience in Europe and your love for these types of designers and clothing influenced that? And what was that feeling from you for you for from going to Europe as a new young design student learning from these people, coming back home and your opportunities in the Pacific Northwest that go, <laughs> hey, here's what we have to offer for you. Yeah, yeah. Well, I came back, I came back in part because I was, I was in Antwerp when 9-11 happened. That's right. And right. we were right. getting ready for Paris Fashion Week, um, That's was right. in early October. And I can't remember if it was actually, if, if it was scheduled to be sooner and it got pushed out or if if it stayed on schedule, I can't remember, but I just remember it was like the first week in October or something. So right. it really had a very short window. A lot of people canceled their shows and a lot of people pivoted very quickly. The messaging of their shows, if not the clothes. Um, and I was, I was assisting two, two main designers, completely different, a Brazilian designer and for any break, you know, which could like their collections couldn't be more different. But right. um, I think that upon returning, um, it was it it was really challenging. I had some other friends who had just um, graduated around the same time as me as well, 
and they were in New York City with their portfolios in tow, um, banging on doors when 9-11 happened. And it just, it just kind of stopped everything, right? So there was, yeah. there were job freezes. I think that to some extent, being a very young designer, being hired as a junior, not even assistant designer, associate designer, those types of roles um, were a little less uh, hard to come by. I think if anything, it was probably harder to to be moving around around that time as a more senior person. But um, yeah, I came back to Portland and um, sure, there's really not a fashion, certainly at the time, early 2000s, not a fashion scene so much in Portland. I think that Project Runway was like just start, just I becoming so. a thing. And maybe we had like a, there was always like a Portland, you right. know, uh, person on there. And Absolutely. Did very well. But it wasn't uh, as much as there's a culture that really supports independent businesses, and um, you know there there were a few there were a few people doing things, but I wouldn't call it an industry so much. So the industry and the opportunities really um, for that world were in New York. Um, if you're going to stay stateside, and that wasn't happening after nine yeah. eleven, so. Um, yeah, the, the prospects were the sportswear companies and I got a job at Janssen swimwear, which was a heritage brand. I very fortunately got put on the heritage kind of archive collection called the diving girl. It was Janssen's, uh, attempt at getting back into the higher end market, which it had always historically been a part of, but had fallen off yeah sort of devolved yes (laughs) the course of a few decades and a lot of different um ownership exchanges and things like that of the company but it's it's also it's a very old brand i mean yes so in the 1910s or something yeah so so, it had its heyday at a different time so yeah i mean my grandma was so proud of me when i got a job at chance let's just say that she said if you didn't have a chance and you just better not go to the beach with her <laughs> thing when she was growing up, you know. So, but I got to be a part of this really small team that um, dug into the archives, which were beautifully maintained, and um, pulled to co- together collections that were really intended for, you know, getting the brand back on the map. And I got to be a part of that team that presented to retailers and buyers and. Um, editors with the senior designer and um and it, and we did we got it back on like Fred Siegel bought it and um again it wasn't even so much about like this is the bathing suit it was like I got to be part of the team that worked the marketing team to say how are we going to get people to feel really yeah. excited by this what's the story and yes our our press kit was literally we bought vintage suitcases little miniature ones and packed it with the samples and some of her, you know, the diving girl's personal affects, like this is the compact she would use and the perfect shade of red lipstick, you know, it was just like glamour, glamour, glamour. And we sent that to key buyers and they ate it up, you know, and it was just that art of storytelling coming to fruition. I was really, really fortunate because that wasn't the experience for everyone, um, you know, in that, 
Yeah. And that's a, what a great bridge also from the fashion world into where you'd eventually go into the sport Absolutely. world. Absolutely. And actually in swim, we were looking at Jansen had the licensee also for Nike swimwear, uh, Tony Hilfiger swimwear, okay. Perry Ellis swimwear. It had some other things in addition to its brand, but um, with the diving girl. Yeah. I mean, we were looking at the red carpet for inspiration because there's such such a red thread between, you know, these gorgeous halters and yeah, um, the, the textures of the materials and the color palettes, all that stuff, embellishments. Yeah. So it yeah. was a lot of fun and it felt um, like as close to fashion maybe as I was going to get besides doing it myself, which I also was always dabbling. You know, Portland has all these fun little nightclub fashion shows and things like that yeah, so true. I was always yeah. making stuff and I was always you know I had brought home a ton of fabric from my time in Belgium and so I was always making and showing and doing photo shoots and all of that kind of stuff but never commercially this episode was brought to you by the functional fabric fair powered by performance days the premier trade show for performance fabrics and materials since 2018, the Functional Fabric Fair has been providing a unique, highly curated trade show experience in the performance materials space, aimed at providing customers with the very best options to create the highest level products in the market. Having a strong focus on education and sustainability, the Functional Fabric Fair is committed to tackling the biggest issues we face today in regards to product manufacturing and our environment. With five shows throughout the year from Portland to New York City to Munich, you're sure to find what you need at the Functional Fabric Fair and Performance Days. I wanted to think about or talk about working at a big company and, and the cultural shifts there, um, going a little bit, you know, nonlinear in the conversation. But, you know, you're going from Europe and you're going from these like, you know, boutique and fashion houses, which have their culture. And then you're coming here to some of the big companies because eventually you ended up at Nike and Reebok and whatnot. Um, and just kind of plugging back into some of these and, you know, Jansen as well, you know, not quite as big, but they're, they're they were big company at one point and I'm not sure what size they were but um what was that like you know to yeah. be part of um a corporate culture for you especially compared to Europe um I got really lucky with my team at Nike I will say I had an amazing design director mm. Karen Francisco who I still think you know reach out to as a mentor today um, and we were an all-female team. There were just three designers and Karen. Um, we had female-led. I mean, almost everyone on our team of maybe 20 people cross-functionally were, were women. Wow. And I had just become a mother myself, was embarking on that journey, which we can maybe talk about, but uh, with my older son. and. Uh, I, it was a closely guarded secret that I was keeping. I didn't think I could be hireable or get a job if, yeah. if people knew, because I was so young in my career, I was still really, I was supposed to be the bench support, you know, like they're hiring me too. Um, but honestly, I, it's like, as soon as the bandaid was ripped off and 
people really saw the life that I was living and who I was and what I had going on personally, but intersecting with my, with my life there, um, things started to change. I, I got more design responsibility and I was really supported. I think actually in a very strange way, being the only mother, um, on our team, but also the youngest person on our team sort of shifted the culture a little bit. Not it was always one that was very nurturing and, um, celebratory of sort of protective, I should say of, of us as designers. Yeah. But that one was sort of like a, whoa, look, we, we need better balance here. You know, like I really want to make sure everyone's, um, taking time out to do the things that they feel passionately about. And I think it, it wasn't like singling me out as, you know, Elizabeth, you really should not be rushing out the door to pick up your toddler and bring him back here, which I was doing. Like I I was doing it quietly, you know? And um, so anyway, things shifted. I felt really supported and loved by that team. That's great. I will say that I know not everyone had the same experience. I did have my first corporate, oh my God, (laughs) moment there when I came into work one day and there were laminated articles on every single, I mean, I was in the design department, so I don't, I don't know if it was company-wide. I don't know if it's just apparel wide but um there was a an article had come out and there was this cartoon depiction of Kevin Plank as David and Phil Knight as Goliath oh. and it was this scathing article about how Nike was this sleeping giant and how could um this no name brand come out of nowhere and just dominate this niche niche market but really it was transcending into youth culture um with under armor and (laughs) that did not go over well and there was literally it was like this company-wide you know apparel group-wide memo that starting today we're going to be number one in this category and so I kind of that just didn't sit right with me you know I just kind of felt like what I mean so someone just did something you weren't doing and they did it better than you. Like leave the guy alone. Yeah. <laughs> you know? The competition. Or, Was it the competition? And 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 from the big wigs saying, no, we're gonna crush. We're gonna crush them. Like, how dare they? You know? And yeah, so yeah. I didn't I didn't love that. Um yeah. but I also it was like I didn't experience those that type of vibe there very often but I also think it had so much to do with the leadership that I had very specifically on my team being um being unique um and and yeah I mean I I I left Nike for love you know I moved cross country to be with with Mark and to start start our family together Mark Mikhail and I and went to Reebok and I just remember thinking it's going to be more or less the same, right? Like mm-hmm. one big sportswear giant for another. And the culture was completely different. I mean, Boston's culture is completely different than Portland culture. And I had culture shock for sure. And moving here, it took a very long time to adjust to that. 
What were some of those challenges? I mean, those things that you saw, like the main high points of this was different, this was different, this was, this was hard. Because I had my own experiences also with culture shock from one brand to another as well. And it's very hard to get over that when you yeah. hit it and, and to get coached through that in some way. Yeah, I think that, um, honestly, I went from a female-led team to um, not very many women in leadership positions. I felt that culture. I think that instead of me, I won't say I, I, I felt it from everyone, but, you know, Reebok was in a time of transition. Um, Adidas had just acquired the the brand and I think that that transition for them was was sticky you know yeah. I, I think that people thought of it as a merger but Adidas was like oh no like we own you now <laughs> right, you know right. I mean? it was like the vibe was a little um was a little off but I just think that um it it's so fascinating to me Nike or if it teaches you anything is confidence belief in the brand it was so powerful and palpable having those maxims really ingrained in the culture and you see them show up and they get referenced on a regular basis it's there's something I actually really appreciated it and loved it because there was a there was a methodology to it that was bigger than any individual's yeah uh, opinion and I think that when I, what, what I learned was that like, that's not how it is everywhere. That's sort of weird to me, you know, like being in a design review and having people personalize everything um, was just shocking to me. And I, 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 I really tried to model how to recenter um, feedback around a brief, for example, and a need and who is it for and and taking it away from like, I would wear it. I wouldn't wear it. I like it. I don't like it. You know, it was just, yeah. it, it, it was less strategic and a little more um, personal, which I think also when you personalize things can start, you know, egos can yes. come into play a little bit yes. more. So absolutely. And navigating that, that, yeah. that was tough. Yeah. And that was what, how it was at Reebok. Yeah. Yeah. And that's when you get that, that, I mean, you know, being in, in Portland myself, you know, at Columbia Sportswear and uh, new people who worked at Nike, my ex-husband worked there for a time on the website and uh, Adidas as well. It's like, it's such a, um, it's so organized and it's so big and it has so many arms. And um, when you end up at these other companies that are much smaller and a little, I don't know, further behind, some of them are older then the company itself, you know, um, I know Columbia Sportswear had a great organization that came from the shadow of Nike and a lot of, um, it was a very old company and a lot of the people came from Nike and a lot of things were in place because Nike had it as well. And, and so it was heavily uh, organized. And then when I went to the North Face, it was a complete opposite type of culture. And that was a massive you know, shock, I think very similar to what you're talking about. Yeah. Those personal there were some aspects me. that were more entrepreneurial, which I also mm-hmm. really liked. I yes. got, I will say, um, once I got the hang of really navigating <laughs> fragile male egos in some <laughs> cases, you know, which was new, just new for me. 
Um, I was our creative director, Michael Schaefer, who's gone on to found um, Noble, was not that guy. I will say, if 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 only his style of leadership could have trickled down to other parts of the organization, we all would have been better for it. He was such a collaborative player. Like good ideas come from anywhere. That's definitely something I've I've carried forward with me. Um, interns had a seat at the table just as much as his design directors did. And I loved that about what he brought to the table and the culture, but, um, it was, it was entrepreneurial in a way that you can't really get at Nike, you know, at Nike, it's like, you're this designer on this category, you design, and we will protect you in that design bubble. Um, but you don't see a finished product. You don't see something after a second proto, um, you have no exposure to the photo shoots and things like that. So I got really lucky on my category at Reebok. They put me on all the collaborations. So with artists and, um, and it, because it was so tight, it was on its own timeline. I would work directly with marketing and PR agencies and I got to travel and I got to present the line. And so it's like, it was pretty much as good as it was going to get for being a designer at a corporate company. I had a lot of autonomy and um, I got to travel a lot and, and work a little more cross-functionally, I think, than, um, than, than a lot of other people would, would experience. That's great. And it feels like something that, that fits your style you know, who you are, where you've come from, but then also what you chose to go into and in running your own business. Um, and we'll talk about in a little, in a few minutes about, um, you know, how you got more into doing that, but, um, but, you know, going into running your own business, um, that's changing, you know, that's, that's bringing or developing your own community culture, but bringing mm-hmm. your work culture into more of a personal realm. And so how has that, like, I want to see how has that decision to do that impacted your personal culture, you know, mm-hmm. to go from that company to that. And then also the differences in, in working, you know, as a startup, with startups, mm-hmm. you know, because you're working, you know, uh, freelance, you would work with big companies and startups. So it's really going into that place of, you know, personal culture and it starts to integrate. And so the question starts to integrate too, of, because they're all affecting each other. Um, we get our head around that question, double questions. <laughs> I, think so. <laughs> I think so. Um, I think that starting when I left the corporate environment and started freelancing, my first freelance project, I, as soon as it got just a little out of my comfort zone and realm, I started picking up the phone, you know, and calling people I know and having them come in and just work with me for a couple hours on something, um, farming things out. I shouldn't say farming things out because I, I I always try to like br- bring it in, you know. Yeah. Like maybe well, you're getting help. To work on this thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I had this aha moment. I remember I didn't have my own space yet. I was at um, this cool kind of before we work, but something uh-huh. kind of like that in Boston. And I had this graphic designer and this color designer, both who had been 
previously laid off by uh, very talented, but one of those mass layoff situations. And we're collaborating on a project with a new startup brand that we're really excited and energized by their, their passion for it. It's coming from such a real place. And I just had this aha moment, you know, I was just like, there shouldn't be design teams at corporate companies, you know, like there just uh -huh. shouldn't. Yeah. I, I, this is how it's supposed to work. We're supposed to um, come together and be excited during daylight hours. Mind you, we're actually designing, <laughs> right. you right. know, in the middle of the day and not meeting. Not at emails. night when you go home. Right. 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 And um, listening to music at the volume that we want it at and in an environment that is um, that is clean and and has plant life and you know yeah. it's just, it just yeah. there was just it was all coming together and I just thought um, and you know what we didn't agree on everything unanimously it was a push and a pull and a you know and, a, and critique with no egos involved and um, I just I just loved it and it just felt like this is what I want to do I want to create a space where um, this is how designers work together and big companies hire us to do the work and then we give it back to them when it's right, <laughs> you know, um, and, and don't get, don't get stuck in all the, the process, um, yeah. process that bogs us down. I think we yes. have our own process. It's not willy nilly, you know, but, yeah. but I think that it's trust. It's letting your, your colleagues right. trust the creative process. Yes. Um, it, it takes the right environment though for that. It's like growing plants in the, the right environment or the wrong environment, you know? And so it takes that, it takes that ability to create the environment and run it, but also be the bridge yeah. to the companies yeah. that you're working with to build that trust and, and, and lock those teams to be able to work together. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, it's an interesting when you when you wrote that in your notes, um, I had an aha moment mm. just this morning. And um, <laughs> it was an interesting thing to read it because I noticed a shift in my own self and my own personal culture mm. is that several years ago, oh, probably a decade ago now, I felt exactly the opposite. And I was mm. saying there should, you know, there should not be design firms and outside teams. And I thought about that and I went, I, re I don't agree with that anymore. But mm. that was a very strong feeling I had because I was working as a design team leader in these mm. companies. And I had had a great experience with a wonderful mentor and somebody who created this exact space that you talk about within the company at Columbia Sportswear. It existed there for a time because of the people and it was very protected. Uh, and then when that broke apart and then also then I wasn't able to experience it at other companies and I was trying to create it. Um, I felt like um, a lot of our teams weren't getting the great projects that we had the talent and ability to do. And they were being given to design for yeah. us because we were overloaded with the process. We were overloaded right. with the bread and butter. And so yeah. it's the same feeling that you're having that you have, it's the same reasoning, but with a different perspective of, all right, 
we, what we want is a design, be able to have a design culture that can do what we do best in the way that we do best and not yes. taken over by the corporate culture. Absolutely. So, and you need, yeah, I could see how it'd be a huge source of frustration because I've actually stepped yeah. into that many times, you know, my yes. team comes in yeah. to work on the fun, cool thing, get free reign. No one questions, you know, your wild ideas. They're telling yeah. you, we want your wild ideas. I can, I, I know that that's frustrating for a designer who's also so capable of doing that same quality of work, but they're not viewed the same way. When you take away the magic and the romance and have your design team, I mean, I, I, it boggles my mind that we think and expect that a person who chose to go to design school, who who spends their two, four plus years in studio slash, you know, lab environments, yes, right. working right. and honing their craft, you want them to sit in a cubicle right. and be in meetings all day long draft perfectly formatted emails, which I got pretty good at. I'll be honest, is probably how I've been able to navigate, you know, this business and get these right, calendar and be projects. Bridge. But yeah. Um, but I don't need or expect my designers to have that same skill set. You know, and the more that people the more that you're honing that craft, you are not honing the thing you've been hired to do, the thing you've right. been trained to do. We all, you know, creative directors really look for designers with like these really impressive portfolios and then put them in a box, right. right? you know, and not let them express any quality of that caliber of very know, limited. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very and limited. I just, I think that people get really, I was just talking about this with the, someone with the other day that, you know, designers, I was a creative director I'm working with. She said, you know, I, PMs, you know, in design, it's like, it's, it's, it's the checks and balances and right. you need that in every project. I'm often playing the, um, both sides of that fence, you know, with my team as well. Um, but you, I, I think everyone has to come to the table knowing that designers want nothing more than to see the work, not even their work, but our collective work out in the world we yes. want to hit the target but how we get there might look different and uncomfortable to you exactly so you exactly. need design leaders to really bridge that uh language barrier because it really is like speaking a different language and say we we like we've got all the needs we've captured it let us play a little to get at the thing you're asking for plus the thing that you didn't know to ask for because why would you that's not that's not how your brain's wired, you know? So yeah. I think I, I'm not to say that there shouldn't be any corporate design teams, but I, my call to action is that people in leadership roles at corporations really need to rethink what that environment yes. is and not right. in a, not in a beta testing kind of way. And it could exactly. go away tomorrow. Right. Um, it there really is a necessity. Yeah. Yeah. And I agree. I mean, the thing is, is that I'm really much more in your camp now in terms of that, because the what we were both talking about is the fact that um, 
designers and design culture needs design leadership. And yeah. what happens, we don't have that design leadership in so many of these companies. And as you were saying, like sometimes you you come in and you have to um, almost play therapist to the young designers, which is what you know structure ended up being a lot for a lot of young people pulling people together in one room, realizing I didn't realize that all these other designers were having the same challenge. And I thought I was weird and my company makes me feel like I don't fit in and they want to, yeah. they want to be understood and they want to be mentored and help to grow in their field. And there yeah. isn't always, there isn't much of a path to growth in a lot of these companies for designers, which is why they end up leaving freelancing, starting businesses and doing other things. So yes. with that, I don't think that companies right now and are in a lot of apparel industries, um, it's a little different in, you know, digital and, and graphic design and industrial design in some ways. They don't have the setup to really uh, nurture a design culture and a design team the way a design firm does. And, yeah. you know, you kind of need to have one or the other because they don't necessarily, if you don't have it in the company and you bring in the design firm, you're going to have odds. You're going to have issues. And that's yeah. what we have now a lot of. Yeah. And it's completely anecdotal, but I do feel like it's a very real, <laughs> real time experience of, for example, of um, we were hired by a large company uh, to design a season of running apparel. And their brief to us was, we should be doing well in this space, but honestly, like the world doesn't need more running clothes. They don't. And no one's asking for running clothes from us. So go so, like they brought us in because they're like, we've been watching what you're doing with Tracksmith and John Jean, these these smaller D2Cs that are very niche and have um created space for themselves in a really crowded category. And we want you to like, what does that for us look like? So we did it. We pushed it. We pushed it way out of their comfort zone. Very few questions asked, however, like they loved it. It was such a fun project to work on. We felt really respected and um, and seeing it come to market was great. Like they, they use a lot of our creative uh, swipe, telling the whole story and how it could come to life at the tail end. So it was, that, it was like dream project, right? Yeah. Well, um, fast forward a year later, my head designer at the time uh, I, we were transitioning our agency a little bit and I joined my husband's company full-time for a while. So anyway, we, um, with total support and love had, she went onto that company and took the head designer role for that same category. Mm, yeah. About a year later, she's like, I don't get it. I don't get why, why am I getting so much pushback now? And what, you know, they, they loved what we did and we, and now all I'm getting is, is, is push back, water it down. You're, you're not checking the brief, you know? And, and I just thought, see, there's just some, that there's a layer of magic that exists when you don't know too much, <laughs> maybe about someone's, yeah. you know, there's a little bit of that like man behind the curtain magic, maybe that, that needs to exist when you're, when you're mixing cultures, mainstream culture with a subculture. You know yes. I mean? It's like, um, I'm not, I'm not, sure what exactly is driving that all the way through to fruition but that's a problem that needs shifting you know 
Yeah. And that's that crushing that, you know, that, that feeling of, of, of that creativity, especially when somebody like, like your designer who got to experience working with you in, in your environment. And then that culture shock of going to another, another place. And then where do you go from there? I want to talk about two things, you know, your, your choice in family, you know, becoming a mom, because that's really something close to my heart. And then also, you know, the future, the, the, or where does the design culture need to go? Um, and I think a big piece of it for me too, is that being a mom as well and having my history, having a similarity to some of yours is that these things aren't, they're not separate from where we are as a culture right now. And as designers, we are empaths. We are the people that are leading things and we are emotional and our lives and our experiences come through our creativity. And as like the author, Seth Godin says, we need creatives. We need artists right now. We don't need managers. We need leaders and artists are the people that we need. So coming into that, I want to talk about those two things um, to finish us off. And one is, and people can hear this also in some of your other podcasts and stories, but your decision to become a mom at a very young age, um, I want to just talk a little bit about that, kind of talk quickly about how you got there. And um, I don't know what you want to share the most about that, because you have a child that you adopted. Um, that was your sister's child. And you were very young. And then then you met Mark. And then he came into the situation, too. And um, you guys were, what, 23, 26, kind of in that? Yeah. And it reminds me of, was that about, because that's, I, I think those are the numbers I've there were yeah. similar. <laughs> like that sounds right. <laughs> <laughs> there, um, it's a similar thing for me that uh, my biological father wasn't in the picture, and my mom had a lot of. She had me very young at twenty one, and um, but she ended up really pulling it together and being like you, like mm -hmm. I'm kicking this person to the curb. I've got to pull this together and make this happen. And I think she was twenty seven when she married my dad, who was twenty three. And when they got married, he said, I want to be her dad and I want to adopt her. And she then I want to be that person that's there. And he's been mm -hmm. my dad ever since. And so, that's so awesome. you know, so I wanted to share that and then have you talk a little bit about your experience in becoming a mom at 23. So yeah. or sooner, I think, right? I don't know. Um, yeah, I am. Um like I'd have to do all math by how old he is now and backwards. <laughs> it's, it's so funny how you forget. I, I forget. It's like my life just, I, hand, I handed it over. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like yeah. you are into the new mile marker for, for all things. Um, so I, yes, I was a assistant designer at Janssen Swimwear when my sister gave birth. She, my older sister was just not in a position, um, to, uh, accept the role of motherhood at that stage of her life. Yeah. And he was, um, immediately put into foster care in the state of Georgia when I was living in Oregon. Um, you know, my mom and I like flew there immediately as soon as we learned she, my sister was in labor and all of that stuff. So I, I think actually the maternal 
whatever that instinct was kicked in the second I met him. I got to hold him as a baby for three days straight in the hospital. Um, and it was an unforgettable experience. You know, looking back on it now, I realized my mom was there as a mom to her daughter in need, right? And I think I was there for this little baby boy oh, in need. I got and chills. I know. I think that, um, yeah, there were, you know, a series of events that led to him being um, the being uh, not reunited with biological parents and um, going to be open to adoption. And um, yeah, I mean, man, when it rains, it pours, right? My mom had just been re-diagnosed with, uh, she had an ongoing long-term battle with breast cancer. She had just been freshly re-diagnosed with that. When we got the call that, um, you know, we're no longer attempting this path and would you be interested? So it wasn't an easy decision per se as a family. It was a lot to discuss. You know, my my parents aging out of parenthood years, yeah. um, being confronted with some serious health issues. And um, I was the middle of five, but young and just starting my career. Honestly, I think I was making like $18,000 a year or something like that as an assistant designer. Blows my mind. Yeah, yeah. And also working from like 8.30 a.m. to 10 p.m. on a regular basis, you know. So, yeah. But I think from my family's perspective, it was just sort of like not even in the realm of consideration. But for me, it just was. It was just like I... Um, okay, well then we'll, we'll, uh, I'll adopt him, right. Or we'll adopt him. Like he'll yeah. come to Oregon. And, um, it took a lot of, um, it took a lot of time and paperwork and, um, red tape, but thankfully, um, when he was 17 months old, we got the call that everything was finally set and ready and, um, he could come to Oregon. So. Um, yeah, and it's, it's just funny. Again, you, you put some energy and things out into the universe and it yeah. responds. So the night before I left to Georgia, I went to go meet the foster family who'd been caring for him since he was born. They were lovely. And I just, I, I didn't know anything about babies, you know, and I broke up with my dumb boyfriend at the time. And I moved home with my mom <laughs> who was going through like chemotherapy oh, and God. radiation and, um, and we went to foster parenting classes together, my mom and I, because um, I legally wasn't um, actually, I wasn't legally allowed to uh, to foster him. You were alone. too young, right? I was yeah. too young, yeah, for the state right rules, even though I was a family member. Um, so we kind of co-parented in the beginning um, until I could get legal guardianship of him, and then I moved out. But I went out with some friends, you know, like last hurrah, I guess. It was funny. It was a fashion show at a bar, of course, in <laughs> Portland. And um, I ended up having this, I was norm. I am still to this day, very socially awkward and shy person. But um, I think maybe because I wasn't worried about impressing anyone, because I was literally embarking on a completely different path that had nothing to do with impressing young men or dating. Or <laughs> Your like, guard was down. Um, my guard was down and I just was being myself, I think. And I, um, Mark and I 
who had been in the same room in other occasions had never exchanged words just sort of had a moment I guess we just sort of talked a little bit made some really serious eye contact and um had a laugh about some whatever and uh he ended up asking a a, f- a friend our mutual friend about me and she's like you know she's like gonna go get her nephew and like be a mom and you know like hands off buddy kind of like you don't want to deal with that but he he had a personal experience as well where his father and siblings were um taken in and adopted by the man who was his grandfather forever when when he mm. was a young man as well so i think he oh. he when he heard that all he heard was um this is someone who cares about family and i care about family and i want to be her friend so when I came came back, you know, a couple of weeks go by, I've got an email in my inbox when I return to work um, from Mark McGarry, just mm. saying hello. And, um, and so, yeah, it was like a really, and then I got a job interview with Nike and, and I got the job and overnight I like tripled my salary and, um, and it's like, it, it was all it was just all working out, you know what I mean? And then, and, and Mikhail was this lovely, beautiful boy that we were just instantly best friends. And I know you have a wonderful story with your partner and I want to give that some time when we have time to do that. Cause I really want to hear it. <laughs> and so um, we'll figure out when that's going to be, but, but you know, your partner, your husband, Mark, and how you guys met, um, which is really through two means, right? Like one through your jobs, you know, at Nike, you didn't, you, you were working together, but also through your personal family choices um, on a personal side, you chose to do something which was, you know, adopt your, your sister's baby while you were very young and single, which is something that would push many a prospective date and possible partners away (laughs) (laughs) there's not a not not a ton of people up to that task at that young age um but with mark it actually seemed to bring him in towards you yes very Mm -hmm. almost magnetically what are the common cultures that the two of you share both in your personal lives you know and your creative work that that you would say are that that magnetic piece that magnetism that bring you together yeah that's a beautiful question i think what we discovered very early on was that we shared a real love and appreciation for family so our very first date was actually him taking me out for a celebration beer because I had just gotten the job offer at Nike and we ended up talking for hours about our families you know I don't don't know how many people in their 20s are going out on first early 20s right (laughs) talking about their grandparents and their parents and their siblings at length like that but we just did and I think we both left there with a real sense of like this person is really different and special and maybe right for me so um we had that in common. And I think that that really has translated into our career choices and building the studio and growing the studio and how we work with clients. 
it's always been family first. It's literally hashtag family first for everything. It's, it's the benchmark that we weigh every decision against. Is it right for the family? And the family means different things in different contexts. And I think that that, um, is literally our family, our, our boys, our parents, um, our siblings. And it's sometimes it's our, it's our team yeah, and it's who comes in, in, into this studio space and works with us. Um, and I think that people who also embody that, um, value are attracted to working with us, working for us mm-hmm. as collaborators or, or working with us as clients. Yeah. Yeah. Cause the care is there and the, and the connection. You know, and I, yeah. I think that was similar with my parents as well with, um, you know, when when my mom had me and she met my dad and that was the, the thing was he was so drawn and very connected to his family that he wanted to create that for his, himself and for us. And, you yeah. know, when you're looking for that, when both of you are looking for that, that is one of the most attractive qualities, right? Yeah. <laughs> so Yeah, absolutely. I mean... I think that it, Mark always said in the beginning that he he really he was curious about this this uh, adventure that I was embarking on in terms of becoming a mother, and he knew that we needed to be friends. He was curious if we would That's be more right. than that. I was <laughs> sure I was off the market forever, and I was just gonna <laughs> be a woman in a shoe with tons of adopted children or something. I just kind of. I don't know. I just felt like that, that was the okay decision to make at the time. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, just, it, it really was uh, meant to be, which is great. Well, in thinking about the flow for this conversation, I was at every point in turn, it, 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 I was really struck by how interrelated and interconnected all aspects of our lives and, and levels of culture are. And especially, you know, with how you've set your life up together, you've made that the thing. Um, and that's a place that we all struggle in our culture is, is, you know, we have work and family and trying to find this kind of work-life balance, which I always thought was funny because I thought, well, work is part of life. It's, it's not separate from your life. Um, you know, it's hard to separate them to talk about them individually, uh, is they both, they all shape each other. So I wanted to think about, you know, your work in design, and, um, you know, that how that has shaped you, your family culture, um, really thinking about how design shapes culture, because in a lot of ways, I, I was thinking about this question of, you know, does design shape culture and, you know, we come into to create things and shift things and make things better, like that's we're problem solving. Um, how do you think, how do you think design might shape culture? Yeah, I think that it's a chicken and egg scenario because I I think that as designers, it's our, our role and our, our natural inclination to take in all the things happening culturally and solve for problems that that result in in good design and that can shape that can influence culture but it just is a constant stream of back and forth i think yeah. if we're mm-hmm. 
culturally in need of um of of something changing i mean i i look at the last handful of years we've had a lot of conversations around um equity and inclusion and culturally different markets in particular that we get briefed to design and be a part of are yeah. um have been dominated by a singular tone of voice and a singular yeah. um leadership i think people coming from a specific background so i think that if you're if you're paying attention to that you can say through design i can actually make this whole world more accessible by solving for you for for solving for considering and communicating with and collaborating with people who have not normally been part of this um culture so or this this activity set so i think that that's a way that design can shift culture you're literally just addressing a new problem but i i couldn't say that it wouldn't happen if the culture wasn't moving that way anyway or craving it and yes. communicating at that need anyway. Yeah. Cause there needs to be a timing and a consensus in a sense, in a way that there has to be a desire for it to gain momentum as well. Exactly. You yeah. Know? Yeah. So. That current is already kind of happening and, and it's definitely our job to have the finger on the pulse and, and be responsive. How has your life and personal culture shaped your design work? You know, how, how, yeah, let's leave it at that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's an interesting one because I think that I, I really use my work as a form of expressing parts of me that I don't embody, I would say, in my daily mm. life. So I'm a mm. pretty, Wait. I'm a pretty, uh, introverted and sort of um reserved maybe in many regards but when it comes to design I I have a lot of fun and freedom and flexibility and I dream big and I push my designers to think big I love going all the way there and then reining it back in um and I don't know that I'm that way I'm I'm a little more slow and steady and and um observant I think in my in my my life outside of these walls and then I think that when I'm in here I'm really pushing for that it's like a creative portal like a place for you to express yourself I mean that sounds kind of uh that that sounds a bit cliche the way that I say it but that's how it feels for a lot of us because I mean almost Almost every designer I know and talk to or artist in some way feels like some form of, of introvert um, mm. at, at all levels. And we might express ourselves in, because we all have that really strong need to express ourselves. Um, but um, but yeah, having that place that you can play. And um, yeah. how do you think that has helped you in working with the brands that you have and getting the the projects that you would want to work on? Has it helped you? <laughs> Is it? Yeah, has it helped? I think so, because I, I do feel that I can be somewhat of a chameleon when it comes to different brands I can put on. I can really step inside and embody the customer that we're going for, really help shape the muse. And I don't personalize it. And I think that that's maybe an 
sometimes it's really personal, you know, every now and then we get a brief where this, we really are the target consumer I am, or, or, you know, one of my designers is, and we can, we can get a little more, um, um, personal with it, but mostly I try to be very clear about who it is that we're, we're creating for, and it's not myself, but I can, this is back to that child psychology, that psychology, you know, curiosity and interest, I think is really, um, is being really open-minded and, and, and responsive to who, who I think it is that we're designing for. Well, yeah, that's, that's the empathetic piece, which, you know, is, is clearly something that you have also with that, that family piece. It really comes out in doing things for other people. Um, but there is that interesting thing about design and being successful, especially in your own firm, is that you can create for the brands and the customer that you're working with, but you also have a style or a way of working or a way of doing things that is unique to you and your business that makes yeah. people want to keep working with you right yeah i do think that um well maybe a lot of designers or creative de- directors have a specific stamp on their work i might reel this back in a little bit but <laughs> i think that my style and my stamp is more about my way of working and yeah. less about the final product um, but I will say that I do, I remember when I first started my career and I started at Nike, I loved fashion so much fashion in the traditional sense of the word that I didn't took me a little while to understand how to design for sport. Yeah. Um, and for sport lifestyle, even because it, as, as I started to shift my exposure and see more of the streetwear, um, influences and, and how those worlds merge, it, it started to click, click for me a bit more, but I think that now I really challenge every project we work on to be functional. So perfect design for me is just really clearly equally form and function. And if it functions well, it will take a beautiful form. I do believe that. So I think that very very rarely are you going to see anything come out of our walls that isn't built for a very specific purpose and intent. I love that storytelling aspect. I'm constantly pushing our clients to 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 dig deep and understand really what are what are the stories we're trying to tell. You know why why this pocket, as opposed to saying I love this other brand's pant or this right. you know and right. comp comp comp. It's like really what's our story and how is it influencing our shapes, our language, our, our details. Yeah. Never need to comp, never need to comp, you know, it's, it's, I I don't know how many times so many of us have talked about this. Um, how many times we've all been asked to do that essentially. And I would always refuse. I don't need to, you know, because even you, you always will have your own way of doing it. One, some way you'll make it better or uh, proper for the end result. And that comes with yeah. how you work with your client and how your relationship with yeah. them. What are you, what are you using yeah. it for? Who are you? What are you trying to say? So, yeah. and that's always going to be I different. Some of my most influential 
arguments for getting out of that now has been that we are getting comp styles that we designed years ago (laughs) and I'm like okay so I can tell you a little bit of history about this piece (laughs) what we looked at we didn't look at anything else in the market the reason why we landed here was because you know these these three ingredients together created something new and interesting so I'll I really work with clients when I get those types of briefs to reel it back a little bit what are the ingredients that we're working with what's the story we're trying to tell and we we can do this for you in your own way and it won't look like this and that's scary for people they yeah. they see something working in the market and they want to have a piece of that but i can't stress enough how much the opportunity is in creating new space wow that i love that story though that it, when people bring you your own stuff i bet that <laughs> that, that just ups the level of trust Oh, you yeah. like this? Great. Yeah, great. You liked it too. Um. <laughs> now, so now here's what we're going to do for you. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. How important do you think design is to our culture today, in your eyes? Well, I think back to that question around culture shifting. I think does does design shift culture? I think it it definitely amplifies the most it can amplify the beauty is the opportunity is it can amplify the most important things happening culturally or the things that need people need to be aware of so yes good design is um easier now to come by than i think it used to i think all of us you know the Instagram Pinterest effect, you know, like everyone's awareness and sort of general acceptance of, of good design has elevated. But I do think that it's still the designer's role to be innovative, to think differently, to constantly push um, somewhat with, with blinders on to what everyone else is doing in terms of comping, but with an open mind into what problems need to be solved for. And that's a delicate balance, I suppose. Um, Yeah. 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 But absolutely. I think design, design can make people feel more seen, heard. It can create accessibility. I think that that's just, that's the beauty and importance of it. Yeah. I like that. I I love that actually. I mean, to to feel seen and heard, um, and make things more accessible. I've actually never heard anybody quite say it that way before. Mm. Um, mm. And you have a lot of people. You know, you get like the Good Grips brand and whatnot, who really put a lot of focus on you know usability and whatnot, and making things accessible. Um, But I do agree with that, that feeling of it makes people feel seen and heard. I always grew up with the feeling of, you know, like um, fashion design as being kind of frivolous, you know, in other people's eyes. And it was always so important to me. And so I always had this lifetime search of um, trying to prove how important it is, even though people don't realize it. And when they experience good design, whether it's clothing and how it makes you feel, which we've talked about, you know, um, it shifts everything. And you don't know, you don't necessarily know why. 
Um, yeah. And it happens on all these different levels because somebody or some group of people put attention to how somebody else might feel around this yeah. product or, you know, this idea yeah. of something and how it looks. And so I think household items is really an interesting place for that too. I was, I don't know why we're talking about this and I'm thinking of, you know, <laughs> my uh, child opening a, a lid in the kitchen or, you know, something for the first time and being overwhelmed yeah. with pride and, and a sense mm. of accomplishment over something. And that's a, that's a design solution. That was, mm. I'm making this easier and more intuitive to use. It's probably, I probably bought it because it's more beautiful because mm -hmm. it was more easy and intuitive to use, <laughs> but how it can make someone else feel is accomplishment and a sense of pride. And that, that is the beauty, I think, an opportunity for design and designers. I love that. That's, that's beautiful. Yeah. How it makes you feel. It's, it's so much of it. Isn't it? And that's why it, it can be very difficult to put a formula on how to create that. Um, what do you see as the future of design going forward and, you know, and the role of the designer, which is shifting. I like to talk to everybody about this is how that role is shifting. Um, and, you know, what do you see for that for you personally and your business and for, for your community and for the world is I always like to look at those three yeah. levels. So. Oh, such a big question. <laughs> <laughs> and we only have a few minutes. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I know. I think um, the future of design, I think it's fascinating and interesting to think about how our lives and our forms of expression are shifting from purely in the real world to how we engage digitally and online. I think our lives online for many of us will will just be as robust as in our real in our real lives. Yeah. I think that that opens a door, a really interesting door to we already see it, right? We we engage online for better for worse, often for worse. Um we we embody a different persona and I do think that's interesting to think about how people maybe will take more risks with their personas online and because of digital animation and AI, you know, there may just be a lot of opportunity for you to really embody some different kind of energy and spirit and how you present yeah. yourself online. Yeah. And the more comfortable you get with that and the more you see yourself in that way, then does that translate into how we present ourselves on in the real world? Do we get more yes. creative and um, expressive after this this genre of you know leisure wear and sweatpants <laughs> will, will we maybe be a little more expressive again um I, I don't know I just think yeah. I think that it's I think that it would make sense that we'll either see two totally polar expressions you're really expressive online and you're really minimal in your real life as resources um and access to resources change and shift or or one feeds the other and it becomes more fluid yeah yeah i see like the lines blurring um 
And and as you were talking about, you know, having this place that you can come to work and open up that creative portal, you're essentially saying the same thing about online is mm. this place for people to actually be seen, find a new way to be seen is what I'm seeing a lot of. And, and now we're all just diving in and you see some people are terrified and other people are just fully like, see me, see me. You know, and new, new people are rising up into awareness that maybe otherwise would not have been. Um, yeah. And somehow that's got to play itself out between these, these two worlds. And we have to figure that, that piece out. Um, how do you see that playing out for you, at least in the short, long term of, <laughs> you know, your career and your team, your business? I don't know. Do you have any ideas? I'm just trying to be a sponge. I think it's really interesting actually to be at this stage of my career and feel like I have um, a certain level of of expertise and acumen and, and that I can impart with clients, but I'm also just learning and interested and curious. And I'm really open to collaborating with especially young designers who yeah. this territory, like they're growing their, they're building their earliest skill set in this new space. So I think I'm just trying to pay attention. Um, I'm definitely seeing that there's a craving for with young people in particular after you know doing some mentoring work with mass art students and mm -hmm. with some East Boston high school students. Everyone is growing up and and really living their lives online, but they're so craving real world experiences too. And I think that that dichotomy is interesting where I'm a little less like, I, I don't really want my kids online that much. Yeah. I, I'm kind of strict when it comes to that. I set a lot of boundaries around it for myself, but, um, but I, I'm trying to be more open-minded and see all the positives and benefits of, of a really digitally interconnected world, as long as we counteract that and have that balance with, being good stewards of the real world too. Yeah. We just all, we're all navigating it together. The, the, the blind leading the blind, but trying to realize what we have to give to help lead in our generation while the younger generation are often leading in the tech world already. I'm finding yeah. I have to learn from my son a lot. He's you know almost 12. And so I'm teaching him things and he's teaching me things. And it's this constant back and forth. And, um, it's an interesting new type of role, you know, yeah. know how to parent like that and lead younger people. It's mm -hmm. just having, it's just being open-minded and having the conversation and yeah. saying, I, I don't, I don't know. So yeah, right. What, what do you know, maybe he doesn't know either. I mean, I, we, we have learned about each other that he pretty much trusts everything on the internet as probably true. And I trust almost nothing <laughs> on the internet. That's probably not true. So, you know, we have these interesting conversations and now I think what, I think if, if the tech giants who are leading the charge with AI are telling governments to pump the brakes, and this is really amazing but really potentially dangerous and risky. I mean, those are the kind of, we're having the same conversation at home, right? Yeah, yeah um, that's true. And, it, and with, and with our work here as well. Um, but yeah, it's a, 
it's an interesting time to be alive. It's an interesting <laughs> time to be in a position where we're, where we, not, not all industries, I think, have to really be confronted with this idea of, of digitally, like, where are we going digitally? What are the tools and technologies available to us as designers, as people making products? Our, our industry is a little behind the ball when it comes to that, but I do yeah. feel like everything's catching up so quickly. We're moving so much more quickly that I do think you know, there will be some tipping point and the industry will catch up. I mean, are, we, are we all going to be 3D printing our clothes at home? I don't know. That wouldn't be a terrible thing for the planet because maybe we would, uh, that would reduce overconsumption and overproduction, I should say. Yeah. I don't yeah. know. I, I'm just really curious. But <laughs> okay. these are the, <laughs> these are the open-minded, like, you know, toss it at the wall and, and blue sky ideas that, yeah. that we all kind of need to play with um, yeah. and, and figure out where we want to go with that. Um, yeah. Do you have any last things, you, any last words or things that you want to impart on the audience and anybody out there in the creative world? I want to thank you for inviting me on to talk to you. I feel like I could talk to you for hours and hours more, and oh. I know we will. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, there's just, there's so much to break up, down and dissect. Yeah. in in this in this industry and um i think in particular i'm really really interested in working with leaders and founders in our industry on the value and importance of nurturing yeah. a creative culture within their walls if if it's not clicking right now if it's uh if if it was and it, and it's and you're struggling to to keep pace with with this evolving i think cultural climate and shift of of how people want to be working um and how they want to feel at work and the work they're doing i think that's probably my most interesting curious area to discuss and and also really want to talk to people who are nailing it like well, you know what are what are what's working how do we keep people really good, talented people, um, working in, I think big companies, it's actually really important, um, yeah, yeah. To, because, you know, that's where all the resources lie and we really need to, to keep those, the influence positive and they have so much influence. Yeah. And deep pockets to make things. Yeah. I mean, I I just keep wondering why, you know, we see when you talk about the things that are working and you get to the Patagonias, you know, the things about where they're looking at people and planet before product um, and their product because they've nailed the product and they can keep working on that. But why that example exists and is so hard for others to follow. Yeah. I don't understand that piece yet. Yeah. I, I I don't either. I think people maybe feel like they need to reach a certain level of success before embodying their values. And I just don't think that's um, the way it works. You know, yeah, I think right. slow and steady, which is really hard for people. There's just this sense of immediacy 
I don't know if we were talking about this, but just the idea that there can be billion dollar brands that disappear. Yes. In a snap. And yeah. no one's going to really be upset to by no one. I mean, consumers, are, right? you know, c- customers, are, they, are there really going to be any broken hearts over it? I think there's just been this yeah. massive push for massive rapid growth and in really yes. unsustainable ways. And, yes. and somehow, um, I think a lot of board members and people in leadership roles are using that as, as a, as a benchmark for success. And I'm not really sure if the the qualitative values and goals are being as clearly set and um, measured. Yeah. So. Well, I have to say, you know, through talking with you and getting to know more about your, your, you know, your whole career path and life path, you're such an example of just decide to do something because it's the right thing and you do it and you figure it out when you go, you figure it out through doing it. It'll work itself out. You have to do the work, but instead of thinking it all through and planning it all out and when am I ever going to be ready? It's like, you got to do the right thing when the right thing needs to be done. Yeah. And I yeah, think that's what we're ready. <laughs> and I think that's what kids kids show us, right? They're like, well, I don't care if you're ready. We are, we're here. And you, you know, you've got to step up to the challenge. So I think wonderful example. Thank you so much for sharing. And I can't wait to talk about more stuff. Um, but for now, we'll wrap up and let right. you get ready for your travels and um, get ready to see you in a month. Yes. Too. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's going to be so fun. Oh my God. You have been listening to Unstructured, the podcast from Structure Society. If you enjoyed this episode, please download, share, like, subscribe, and add your thoughts and suggestions in the comments. Also, please consider a Substack paid subscription to help us bring even more meaningful content and connection points to you and our creator community. Here, you'll find articles and news, as well as the podcast and additional content. We cannot grow without you. Thanks for listening and talk to you soon. This episode was brought to you by Structure Society, the community for creators in art, design, and music. For almost a decade, Structure has brought together creatives from across the industrial, apparel, graphic, and sound design industries, building professional relationships, creating a platform for knowledge sharing, and raising the bar of product creation. From live events and workshops to publication and podcasting, Structure continues to evolve to build the strong creator community needed to craft our future. Find us at struktursociety.com and subscribe to our substack at structuresociety.substack.com.